This Dharma talk was recorded at Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. Well, good morning. Thank you to everyone for being here. And uh, <clears throat> my voice sounds a little rough. I'm on about day three of this five-day cold that everybody else in the family had, but I thought I wasn't going to get. You can see how that turned out. So hopefully my voice holds up for half an hour and uh, we'll dive right into this. This is a talk about my first Zen teacher, Catherine Tanis, and her approach to practice. Catherine was part of that pioneering generation of strong Zen women to come out of the Shunru Suzuki lineage in the 60s and 70s. There were other strong women teachers in other lineages at about the same time too, of course, but Catherine was the first one I was exposed to and she left a very powerful and indelible stamp on me and my Zen. I'll talk more about Catherine's history in a minute, but first I have a confession to share with you. When Jodo-san asked me to give this talk, I immediately came down with a serious case of imposter syndrome. I'm not a longtime student of Catherine's. I practiced with her at the Santa Cruz and later Monterey Zen Centers from the summer of 1995 through about 1999. At that time, my life sort of went sideways for about five years and I lost track of the practice. I came back to Catherine briefly in 2005 and then moved out of California on business and began studying with other traditions, first Vipassana for about a year and later in Song Song's Kwan Am tradition on and off from 2008 to 2012 when I moved to Longmont and began sitting with Jodo-san and Prairie Mountain Zen Center. I took vows here before moving again and returning to the Kwan Am tradition. And then after I moved to Arkansas, via Zoom with Prairie Mountain and with all of you again. It's good to be here. All that is sort of a roundabout way of saying I don't have a very deep knowledge of any Zen tradition, least of all in the Suzuki lineage in general and Catherine Tanis in particular. But here I am talking about it. So it's I feel like it's like that con, where do you step off a hundred foot pole? Fortunately, there is this book, <clears throat> which I'm trying to hold it in front of my camera and I can't tell whether the camera is picking it up. No, it's not. Hold it up a little more. Hold it farther back. Okay, well, let's do this instead. Just hold it up a little higher, Rick. So the, the book is called The Truth of This Life, Zen Teachings on Loving the World as It Is. And let me put it into the chat in case you're interested in finding it later. So there you have it for reference. This uh, book is a collection of Catherine's talks. Uh, it was published in 2018 following her death in 2012. I'll be leaning on it heavily for purposes of this presentation. Mostly I'll be reading you excerpts from it. I'll be sharing excerpts from five of her talks with you this morning. They cover a lot of ground and I don't expect you to keep up with all the material, but it's more to give you some flavor of Catherine, how she talked and her approach to Zen. Finally, I should mention, I'm not even sure of the pronunciation of Catherine's last name. I've only read it. I never heard it spoken in the years I sat with the Santa Cruz and Monterey groups. Everyone just called her Catherine. They never used her Buddhist name, Soban, either, nor did they call her Roshi. For the five years I was with her, I only heard people refer to her by her first name. 
So I'm not quite sure about the pronunciation of her last name. It's always, I always pronounced it Tanis, but it might also be Thanus. So uh, with that, we'll uh, dig a little bit more into uh, Catherine's biography. This is taken from the Santa Cruz Zen Center website, and it's a little long, but some of the information here will come in handy later. Catherine started Zen practice in January 1967 at Sakoji, the Japanese Buddhist temple in Japantown in San Francisco. At that time, she had already completed a BA in journalism, an MA in sociology from the New School for Social Research in New York, a BFA from the San Francisco Art Institute, and was enrolled in an MFA program in painting at UC Davis. She remembers asking herself, what was I doing collecting all these degrees? She went with a friend to meditate at Sakoji, and on her third visit, reported that after difficulty sitting still, she had a breakthrough experience and was, quote, sitting on the ceiling for the rest of the period. While she found graduate studies in painting with Richard Diebenkorn stressful, often accompanied by migraines and depression, her Zen practice deepened. In a student-teacher interchange with his Zuki Roshi, Catherine asked, inside me there is a yes and a no, which should I follow? Roshi responded, follow the yes. For Catherine, the simplicity of practice, cutting through to deep matter, emotional, physical, psychological, drew her to, into sustained commitment to Zen Buddhism. From 1967 on, Catherine was a devoted teacher and student of Buddhism. She trained with Suzuki Roshi, the founder of the Soto Zen lineage in Buddhism in the West, at Sakoji, San Francisco Zen Center, Tassajara, and Green Gulch Farm. She was lay ordained by Suzuki Roshi, priest ordained by Zenzatsu Richard Baker Roshi in 1975, and received Dharma transmission from Tenshin Rev Anderson in 1988. As an aside, I couldn't find any mention of Catherine's association with Katagiri Roshi in any of the sources I consulted in preparing this talk. But we know Katagiri worked with Shanru Suzuki at San Francisco Zen Center, particularly from 1969 until Suzuki's death in 1971, so he must have interacted with her. Catherine founded the Monterey Bay Zen Center in 1988, became head teacher of the Santa Cruz Zen Center in 1989, as was installed as the abbot of the Santa Cruz Zen Center in 2002. Since 2009, though partially retired, she continued to teach classes and retreats, lead meditation periods, and supervise her students' training. Catherine died in 2012. Catherine's Dharma name is Soban, which means grass writing, and it reflects reflects her artistry in expressing the heart of Buddhist practice through language. She brought a keen editorial skills, including a stint as the editor of the Daily Californian, the Cal Berkeley uh, student newspaper. She brought all that to Zen practice. She was an editor of Wind Bell, a publication of San Francisco Zen Center, and a co-translator of Dogen's writings, as well as a contribute to Kazaki Tanahashi's Enlightenment Unfolds, The Essential Teachings of Zen Master Dogen, and moon in a dewdrop. Catherine's legacy as a Zen teacher is her unusual ability to translate formal monastic training into meaningful understanding of everyday life. I certainly found this to be true. As a beginning Zen student more than 25 years ago, one of the most difficult things for me was trying to understand Buddhist concepts and models because they just don't map into Western philosophy or Judeo-Christian ideas about how our mind or the world works. Catherine's talk 
kickboxing classes helped me over that mountain and has influenced everything I've known since. Something I want to point out about Catherine is the contrast between her academic preparation in the arts and her very everyday approach to Zen. Bachelor of Arts, Master of Arts, Bachelor of Fine Arts, and Master of Fine Arts program when she decided to walk away from all that and devote her life to Zen. And then she helped translate Dogen. This woman was a serious scholar. She told me one time that Suzuki Roshi was constantly telling her to be more ordinary. And I guess she took that advice to heart. For all that education, all that scholarship, you would never know it. To see her outside the Zendo was to see someone completely unremarkable. She was a small woman, slightly built and slightly bowed, and did nothing to call attention to herself. She could have been anyone. In keeping with Suzuki's admonition, she was very ordinary. But if you observed her for a while, you realized she was absolutely engaged with the present moment, whether that was chatting with you over tea or giving a Zen talk or working in the kitchen. And her talks reflect both sides of her personality. The first section of The Truth of This Life is called Inside of Time. And the first essay is called The Farmer Came to See, which begins with a story about Shakyamuni Buddha. I'll read you several excerpts from this talk. It illustrates the clarity of Catherine's thought and her ability to express deep concepts in simple language. So this is Catherine talking. She says, a farmer came to see the Buddha because he had heard that the Buddha was a great teacher. He thought the Buddha might be able to help him. So he told the Buddha his problems, too much rain or not enough. His wife nagged him too much. He occasionally got tired of her. His kids didn't show him enough respect and so forth. When the farmer was finished, he waited for the Buddha to speak and ease his life. The Buddha said, I can't help you. I'm sorry, the Buddha said, I can't help you. Everybody's got problems. In fact, you have 80, 83 problems and there is nothing you can do about it. If you work really hard on one of them, maybe you fix it, but almost immediately another one will pop up in its place. For example, you're going to lose your family someday and you're going to die someday. There is nothing you or anyone else can do about it. The man, now agitated, asked, well, what good is your teaching? And the Buddha said, maybe the teaching will help you with the 84th problem. What is that? The farmer said. Well, said the Buddha, you want to not have any problems. That's the 84th problem. I love that story. Then Catherine goes on. She said, I heard, a, I heard a recent talk from someone whose first encounter with Suzuki Roshi resembles this story. This person brought forth a litany of painful conditions in his life and asked Suzuki Roshi what to do about them. Suzuki Roshi just sat there and chuckled. And when the speaker was finished, Suzuki Roshi suggested he start sitting Zazen. He told him, you're like a clock that's all wound up, but you don't know what time it is. Then Catherine begins to articulate the problem in a more concrete way and provide an important insight. She says, even though we have the blueprint of the path, impermanence, emptiness, no substantial self, the individual doesn't do it. In our culture, we emphasize the efficacy of the individual, but we do not acknowledge or respect the deep underpinnings of our life. We work with what we can see, but underneath the visible are the invisible energies that need time to manifest and become available to us. We can observe the process of an arising self by watching how we crave, then grasp one-sidedly for this or that pleasant or unpleasant experience. And then she proposes a solution. 
Catherine says, please use your time to develop an insatiable appetite for inner awareness, to become proficient with this mind. Notice what you're willing to pay attention to. We give you all these practices to push you. And then she ends it with a zinger. She says, if they were easy, they wouldn't be worth doing. So very methodical, everyday teaching, clearly expressing deep concerns in plain language. That's Catherine's essence. A couple of chapters later, she refers to herself in third person, the only time she does this in the book. She says, what we are studying is the mind, not Catherine's mind, but the mind arising as Catherine. And when Catherine can hear and accept everything that's going on in her mind, she can hear and accept everything that's going on in everybody's mind. Nothing is outside her mind. In that mind, there is no pressure to improve Catherine. It is, quote, to be without anxiety about non-perfection, as Senkan says. Senkan was the third patriarch of Zen in China. I had to look that up. Back to Catherine. From that place, there is no anxiety about right or wrong, and yet there is complete understanding of causes and consequences. So I can talk I want to share with you is excerpts from how the, how the universe thinks, and it's very specific to the experience of sitting and doing zazen. In it, Catherine says, we may have some idea of what we would like to have happen during sitting, but our mind and body unfold according to their own inner necessity. This is the marvelous, unfabricated, inconceivable power of Zen. We often don't find our breath and our body interesting enough to bear, bring wholehearted attention to them, but wait until we are breathing our last breath. See how wholehearted we become on that last breath. When we can do it in our life, we find there is no stronger, more powerful source in the universe than our undivided body and mind. A monk asked his teacher, what are you thinking of in that immobile sitting position? I think of not thinking, replied the teacher. The monk asked again, how do you think of not thinking? Beyond thinking, replied the teacher. I think of not thinking is a key teaching in our practice. Thoughts come. We did not try to exclude them. Our effort is to leave them alone as much as possible and let them go on their way. Not thinking, or zazen, is how the universe thinks. We are the undivided, unfabricated movement of energy in the universe. You can call this beyond thinking. This dialogue was a conundrum for me until I understood that the energy arising when my mind moves is the way the mind is. We can say there is thinking, but I don't think. When I was younger in practice, this felt like a passive submission to the winds of fate, instead of my understanding that I was cultivating the capability to be engaged with the reality of my life. This is practicing with no gaining idea. It took me some time to realize I was not experiencing my experience. Transmission of the Dharma does not happen from the outside or through words, books, or some teacher. Actual transmission is intimate. You transmit to yourself. The transmission that comes from outside is not intimate. It took me years to understand and accept this. It was only when I exhausted the effort to find something outside that I was able to turn my awareness inward toward just this mind and body. In the wholehearted way, Dogen says, Buddha is actualized only when ordinary human beings are lost. Buddha is actualized when our human striving, desires, and ambitions don't work anymore. The times when I have borne witness to such parts of myself as hopelessness and loss 
were the moments of deepest self-acceptance. There are parts of ourselves we don't wish to have anything to do with. We may try to outrun them for our lives, but finally we can't. Working with whatever comes up, not viewing anything as an interruption or hindrance in our lives, we come to see that whatever arises is our life. Without expectation or judgment, we can be present for our karmic body, our fear, anger, delusion, greed, shame, embarrassment, hesitation, until our awareness begins to release the knots of our consciousness. These two currents, our karmic life and our life free of constructs, are happening simultaneously. All we need to do is step back from this entangled realm and watch it all go by. We can get the hang of just seeing when we really want to. So this one has the same structure as most of her talks. Introduction with a classic story, statement of the problem, practical solution in everyday language. That's just how Catherine structured her talks. The last set of excerpts I wanna share with you today come from the final part of her book, a section called Just This. This is the section that deals most with everyday reality, and I suspect the group of talks occurred later in her life. They're also the briefest, so I'll give you three of them. And again, these are just excerpts. You can read the complete talks for yourself. This talk is entitled, An Ordinary Grounded Life. Zen practice is about living ordinary life with our feet on the ground. This altar in the Zendo represents the groundedness of this room and also of our lives. You can say the altar represents zero or emptiness, the inclusion of all possibilities and all opposites. And the Buddha we are bowing to represents our own awakened nature, which includes all possibilities and all contradictions. For some people, the altar is a nuisance. For others, it stops the mind. Am I awake? The altar is an opportunity to remember why we are here. When I said the altar represents zero, that means emptiness. What we mean by emptiness is that this altar, this wood, is free of anything you are imagining it to be. It was originally a tree, and now it is this particular shape. Both states are expressions of its impermanent nature. All of these altar objects are free of whether you like them or not. We can make the altar a big problem or something reassuring. Oh, I'm at home. There is an altar. I know how to orient myself in this room. It can function any way you need it to. Emptiness also means complete, because our true nature is not the particular form we take in each moment. We say our true nature is formless. We are both a particular form, and we are free of that form. Therefore, we exist in all possibilities as the entire universe. When you hear the sound of the bell, does your aliveness give life to the bell? Bowing can bring your life forth. Anything, including Zendo forms, can bring forth our full energy, our deeper life. In Dogen's pure, pure standards of the Zen community, Dogen talks, tells the head cook of the monastery, while examining the rice, watch for sand. While examining the sand, watch for rice. This is both a literal instruction and also about separating deluded ideas from your wisdom mind. Don't look at things with common eyes, but with the eye of wisdom. Work without prejudice using whatever ingredients are at hand. When Western monks spend time in Japanese monasteries, they often ask many questions. What does this form mean? Why do we do this? A Japanese teacher replied, understanding is not so important. Understanding is easy. The main point is to continue. This means to get up every day and take care of your life. 
The next section is called Loving the World as it is. It contains some parts that are hard lessons, at least for me, and afterwards we can talk about how they seem to you. Dogen Zenji describes Zazen as something like unfabricated clear seeing, unconstructedness in stillness. He further describes Zazen as self-fulfillment or self-enjoyment, quote, the self receiving and accepting its function. The self receives its own freedom, its own contraction and relaxation, absorption and release in the fulfillment of this meditation. Practice is about penetrating the membrane of mentality that's between us and our life. It's meeting something beyond what the mind knows, meeting with our body, our senses, our skin, our ears. We accomplish this when we trust ourselves to drop off what the mind knows. It is unconstructed stillness that receives the benefit of this activity. Because it is unconstructed, it does not appear within perception. Hence, the deep and subtle work of practice is mysterious, unrecognizable to consciousness. Recently, I've come to realize that our work is to love the world just as it is. Because our discriminating mind is constantly thinking of improvements for the world, how I should be, how you should be, to love the world is as it is, means to completely accept those thoughts and also our regrets about how the world is. Loving the world as it is, is being willing to be in the only world we know. This is really the point of practice. When we say that everything is suffering, we are voicing the first noble truth, which acknowledges that our life is fragile, constantly subject to changing conditions. Many of us are experiencing financial, psychological, emotional, or social insecurity. When we find it's not within our power to make our lives safe and secure for ourselves and our family, we begin to become aligned with life as it is. Humility and maturity may arise. Buddhism is not some special teaching and enlightenment is not some particular stage that we attain. Until we understand the dynamics of our mental life fully, we will be caught by the idea that there is some better state of mind than ours. Sitting in this self-filling, self-receiving samadhi, sitting quietly in unconstructed stillness is the gift we give to the world, the gift we receive ourselves. It may not feel like unconstructed stillness. It may feel like you are complaining the entire period or being tired, being sleepy. Even that activity can be beneficial if we are willing to experience it and release it without mental commentary. The willingness to be in unconstructed stillness of our lives doesn't mean only in Zazen. We can do it in work, in our relationships with family members, our friends. This is what the world asks for us. The final set of excerpts is entitled, It Is What It Is. It's also the last talk in the book. Catherine says, in his commentary on the merging of difference in unity, Suzuki Roshi said, Strictly speaking, Buddhists have no teaching. What we have is nothingness. What kind of composure do we have? Not some special idea of God or a deity, but the understanding of the reality we are always facing, such as, where are we? What are we doing? Who is this person in front of me? When we observe things in this way, everything is things as they are, truth or essential being. Moment after moment, we are facing God. Each of us is also God or Buddha, so we don't need any special idea of God. The instruction in our meditation is to know where we are and have no gaining idea. Suzuki Roshi emphasized that our only instruction is to be present, sorry, 
be present for our experience. Whatever we think we understand in a period of zazen, which is often psychological understanding, isn't as deep as what we don't understand. We trust that what we don't know will bring us to the deepest place. Maybe the virtue of our practice is that it shows us the arrogance of our minds. We discover that we don't see things as they are. We see things as our mind creates them. To see things as they are, I first had to reduce myself, feeling humble enough to see through my ego. The ego is so dominant that even when we think we're doing this practice, we're actually doing ourselves. It takes quite a while to see free of our fears, our lack of trust, our aggression. I think our intention grows as we do. It enters the body more and more deeply. The intention that really carries us through this life is the intention to be whole and to see clearly. That's what it means to be a person of suchness. So there you have some bits and pieces of five of Catherine's talks. I hope they've given you a sense of the kind of person she was and how she expressed her Zen. I can only reiterate my ongoing thanks to her for being my teacher. Thank you very much for listening to my talk. You've been listening to a Dharma talk from Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. To learn more about us or to make a donation, visit us at prairiemountain.org.